Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's almost two years now that we're into the pandemic. There are, as we speak, record numbers of new COVID cases and hospitalizations. Today, we're going to welcome in emergency room doctor and writer Marion Bishop. We're going to talk about how we're all doing emotionally, about hope, about endemicity, about how healthcare workers are doing and worries about burnout, about the Omicron surge, about how we can stay safe without locking down, about vaccines and booster shots, and about how many of us are just over it, where that leaves all of us. Marion Bishop is an emergency room doctor and a writer, practices in the Intermountain West, and before going to medical school, she earned a PhD in English and taught college English for 11 years. And she writes and speaks regularly about the intersection of medicine and the humanities, it has been interviewed frequently about the pandemic, including here on Access Utah. And we're grateful, Dr. Bishop, you're back with us. Thanks for joining us. It's always an honor to be here, Tom, and I really appreciate the program and UPR's interest in uh, what's happening in hospitals right now and uh, in this kind of fascinating, ever-evolving public health crisis. <laughs> yeah, it, it's seemingly endless as well. Um, the website is Marion C. Bishop, by the way. You can uh, see articles and writings from uh, Dr. Bishop. Uh, let me, uh, first of all, ask you how things are going in the, I think you, were, you work still in a couple of hospitals? Yes, yeah, yes. I, um, I'm at uh, Cache Valley Hospital in uh, Logan and uh, Brigham City Community Hospital uh, in Brigham City. So uh, are we seeing the Omicron surge um, in, in the hospitals? Are we having increased hospitalizations? You know, I'm the best at kind of giving a kind of on-the-ground uh, you know, person to person assessment. There, there are people who look at you know, kind of statistically where the data is. But my, you know, going to work, you know, every week kind of suggests to me that, you know, Utah is a couple of weeks behind the the big surges that they're seeing on the East Coast, and my community hospitals are probably five to ten days behind the surges that are happening in. Uh, the Salt Lake City area. Um, that being said, um, I'm seeing more COVID. We we never stopped seeing COVID. You know, the the the, the public language is about waves, and certainly uh, there are peaks and valleys. There are times when I see more COVID patients and times when I see fewer. But in the emergency room, the need to care for COVID patients has never really gone away. And uh, through maybe uh, the very end of February or the beginning of December, not, sorry, not February, November, or the beginning of December, we were seeing fewer patients, and now that has started to ramp up again. Um, I worked an overnight shift on Monday night, and I would say that a third to half the patients I saw were, were COVID patients. I want to ask you, uh, I'll bring this up here early in the program, I want to ask you about this d- divide. It's, it's certainly a divide in America. Um, there are folks who are just done and have been for a while. Uh, and you can call it denial or maybe you can call it a clever coping mechanism. I, I, don't, I don't know. And, and uh, then there are folks who are, you know, worried about it and, uh, and tired, right? Numb, hunkering down, whatever you want to call it. I want to read this. Um, this is a couple of articles from The Atlantic uh, magazine. So this is Matthew Walther. This is from... Um, December of last year, uh, and he lives in rural Michigan. Um, let me find this here. And so the uh, title of the article is, Where I Live, No One Cares About COVID. I don't know what the percentage would be, but I, I have friends. I you know anecdotally, I 
you know, run into people who have this exact feeling. I want to quote Mr. Walther. I don't know how to put this in a way that will not make me sound flippant. No one cares, literally speaking. I know it isn't true, because if it were, articles wouldn't be commissioned. But outside the world inhabited by professional and managerial classes in a handful of major metropolitan areas, many, if not most, Americans are leading their lives as if COVID is over, and they have been for a long time. He goes on to say, um, I don't mean to deny COVID's continuing presence. And he looked up his stats for his county in Michigan, 136 deaths and uh, seven-day average for positive tests, high as it's ever been. He goes on to say, what I wish to convey is that the virus simply does not factor into my calculations or those of my neighbors who have been foregoing mass tests unless work imposes them, in which case they're shrugged off as the usual BS from human resources and other tangible markers of COVID-19's existence for months, perhaps even longer. Now, I know folks who have this exact attitude. Um, I wonder what your reaction to this is. Like I say, um, and... You know, folks who don't have this attitude, I, I'm sure you know, Mr. Walther would say you're you're just overreacting. Um, so I'm throwing a lot at you there, Dr. Bishop. What what's your reaction? <laughs> no, well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I can respond to all of it, but I certainly relate to that sentiment around COVID fatigue. You know, I feel like healthcare workers most more than most wish we could be over it. You know, I, I, I'm I'm profoundly tired of uh, the kind of the changes to our lives, uh, the discouraging news, the uh, kind of, you know, just the, the, the ever-presence of something in our lives that didn't even really exist or that we hadn't had to consider until two years ago. So um, as, as somebody who's in the thick of it, I'm incredibly sympathetic to the perspective that uh, Mr. Walter is, is leaving in that article. And, you know, my kids, you know, even say to me, you know, can we be over it? And and even, you know, colleagues and I in the hospital say, oh, oh, my goodness, can you imagine when this is done? But the other thing is that for plenty of people, and not just that, you know, kind of elite class of, you know, news reading, whatever that Mr. Walter is talking about, for plenty of people, COVID is not over. Um, there are people going to work in grocery stores and Amazon warehouses every day who are risking their lives to put our packages together um, and, you know, make sure we have food to eat and who end up in my emergency room with COVID. And so, you know, uh, that, well, I understand the, the, the fatigue and the, the natural kind of human inclination to say enough already, stop talking to me about this. I've had it. Um, there, there are, there are people who are holding our country together right now who have to think about it every day and who have to weigh risks, you know, can, can I pay the rent or am I going to risk getting COVID at work? Am I going to risk getting COVID being out and about? And I know that to be true because these people end up in my emergency room and tell me the stories about where they contracted the illness. And so I think we need compassion for all of us. Those that are sick of the illness and those that are interacting with the illness every day and don't really have a chance to escape from it. And, and I'm not talking about healthcare workers there. I'm talking about, you know, pe- people who just can't avoid it and for whom it's impossible to call it simply a nuisance. Well, let's talk about healthcare workers. You're right in the middle of that. Uh, how, how are you doing? How are the people around you doing? You know, it's this crazy mix of, um, you know, of, of, of fatigue and, um, working at uh, a professional level that I think we've 
never been more proud of and that I didn't even know we would be capable of doing. Um, I participated in a press conference last week where the chief nursing officer at the University of Utah for the University of Health Utah Health Systems talked in just really um, moving terms about the toll that the pandemic has taken on her nursing staff. And and I was profoundly moved by it because I go to work with these, you know, nursing and respiratory therapists and, you know, other kinds of, you know, healthcare heroes every day. And I'm incredibly grateful for, for their help. And I know the toll that this takes. At the same time, like two years into this pandemic, um, we are smarter and more capable and faster and stronger uh, at taking care of not just COVID patients, but everybody that walks through the door than we were two years ago. You know, it's interesting thinking about coming back on the program. I was remembering the first time I spoke with you uh, in May of 2020 and just kind of anticipating everything that was coming down the pipe. And, and I thought, well, okay, I've got to you know, this is a time for professional growth, and this is going to stretch me in this way or that way. You know, two years into it, like, I didn't know I could get stretched this big. And, you know, similarly, our institutions, you know, the hospital system that I work for has gotten better at making sure we have adequate supplies, making sure that the medicines are in the right place at the right time for the right people, making sure that, you know, we can continue to staff hospitals and take care of people. So there has been this kind of magnification um, on every level, you know, I'm sure there are phlebotomists who didn't imagine drawing as much blood and running as many tests and, um, you know, uh, environmental, environmental services people who didn't know they could sanitize as many rooms as fast as they've had to do it, that, that, that all of us have been upregulated to this kind of like, oh, just extraordinary level in terms of our professional capacity. And so, like, yeah, we're all tired because we've been doing a hard job for a long time, but it's, it, it's also true that, that, you know, we've, we've done something that's really pretty remarkable. And, you know, we've done it well, you know, on the one hand, people were saying, you know, good for you. Thank you so much for helping us. And other people are saying, you know, we're kind of over it, but, but, but we're proud to have been able to do that for everyone who needs us. Of course, we're, we're reading, uh, hearing reports from around the country that uh, healthcare workers are, are quitting at, at higher numbers and it, you know, just burnouts. Um, you're presenting a, a hopeful picture here. That's, uh, it's, heartening, I guess, in, in your, well, your experience. Well, thank you. And I think it's both, you know, um, I have a, have a good friend who is a social worker and she was talking about, you know, healthcare and like that, that word burnout kind of troubles me because it almost, presumes like a failing on the part of the person who burned out. And this, uh, you know, good friend who's a social worker, she said, you know, you put the, the most kind of stress-hardy, resilient, eager, capable individual in a, uh, in a challenging situation day after day after day, and eventually they're going to get fatigued, eventually they're going to need rest, eventually they're going to need reprieve. But that doesn't mean that they've done anything wrong. It just means that they've been in the fight. And and so, you know, with my colleagues, I see both of that. You know, sometimes we're tired. I'd lie if I said I hadn't shed a few tears. I'd lie even more if I hadn't said that I'd use some foul language from time to time. You know, but it's also true that I go to work with this, whether you want to call us a web or a machine, 
um, that has never been stronger, never been better oiled, never been more capable. And, you know, we're all functioning at a professional level that I could never have imagined when I was in medical school or training. So it's, it's, a, it's this weird combination of, of extraordinary pride and also, um, you know, the recognition that, that we're all human. And, you know, when, when we say we need your help, it's not because we don't want to do our job or because we'd like to work less hard. It's because, you know, like to beat this pandemic really is going to take all of us. Let's take a break. Uh, we do for a first break here. We're talking with uh, Dr. Marion Bishop. She's an emergency room doctor and writer, and you can find uh, some of her writings at MarionCBishop.com uh, uh, is her website. Uh, she's also on Medium, I see, as well. You can find some of her writings there as well, uh, and uh, various newspapers and, and such. Um, before uh, she went to medical school, she earned a PhD in English and taught college English for 11 years. So interesting intersection of skills, and uh, we're glad to have her on the program today. We're talking, of course, about COVID, talking about the pandemic. We're almost two years in, and uh, record numbers right now of new COVID cases and hospitalizations. Uh, we're moving uh, north now of 800,000 deaths nationwide uh, since the the pandemic uh, began. Um, we'll have more on this following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and the Bear River Health Department, offering COVID-19 vaccinations to children and adults ages five years and up, and booster doses for everyone ages 12 and up. Information available at brhd.org. Hey, it's Francis Lamb. This week on our show, in honor of the depths of winter, we're all about soup. We talk with Jen Lewis, author of The Chicken Soup Manifesto, to get her tips and recipes from around the world. We taste canned chicken socks to find out which one we like best, and that's all coming up on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is now streaming a variety of music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue. You can hear it 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR 3 button. Puedes escuchar una variedad de programas musicales y de charlas en español de Radio Bilingue en UPR. Puedes escucharlo las 24 horas del día en upr.org. Simplemente haga clic en Escuchar en Vivo y luego presione el botón UPR 3. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking about the pandemic, um, and uh, it's almost two years now with the Omicron surge, record numbers right now of new COVID cases and hospitalizations. Uh, the death toll just keeps going up. We may, with by the, by the end of this, hit a million deaths in the United States uh, just uh, just alone. Um, so, you know, very, very serious stuff. We talked earlier in the program about how uh, some folks, uh, for, for them, it's, uh, it's just done. They're over. They're not making decisions based on, on uh, you know, COVID restrictions uh, and the like. Others are being very careful. Um, and I want to start this segment, Dr. Bishop, w- with, that, um, with that divide. Um, I want to read something from an op-ed piece you uh, wrote in the Salt Lake Tribune. This is November of last year. We'll get back into this uh, from a different uh, angle uh, a little bit later in the program. You're talking about vaccinations. 
why uh, we should vaccinate our children, and now that uh, vaccines are available for children, why you vaccinated your your children. Um, but I want to talk about this specific uh, piece of this right now. Uh, one of the reasons you give for getting vaccinated, va- getting vaccinated is a way children can serve their community. I guess you can extrapolate that, a way all of us can serve our community. I'll go on to quote uh, Dr. Bishop. I want my kids to know that getting immunized is not just something they're doing for themselves. It's an act of service that will benefit their whole community and a demonstration of civic responsibility they can be proud of. Um, I'll tell you, Dr. Bishop, I I had more hope earlier on that we uh, that collectively we're all going to do this. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to join hands and sing Kumbaya. And it was all going to be civic responsibility, um, but it hasn't worked out that way. I wonder what your thoughts are. You know, I probably had that same hope, Tom, and uh, especially because as someone who deals with the disease every day, you know, for me, getting vaccinated was a really simple decision. Um, every vaccine comes with risk, but having seen the risk of COVID, uh, there's no comparison to, the, you know, the risk of, of COVID is so much bigger than the risk of of the vaccine based on my experience. But I also understand that everyone hasn't had that experience. And, you know, for people, you know, there, there are folks for whom the, the pandemic has mostly been uh, an inconvenience. They've been lucky. They, you know, don't know people who've gotten ill or the folks they know who've gotten ill haven't been terribly sick. And, you know, so why bother? And I don't think those people are being cruel or irresponsible. They're just making, you know, decisions with the data that they have. But, you know, I've I've been thinking a lot about about you know natural disasters lately. Probably trying to bend my brain around, you know, how how do you talk about a pandemic? And you know, sometimes we've used the the, the metaphor of, of war, you know, for for the pandemic, and that one doesn't fit for me in a lot of ways. But but the lately the the metaphor of a natural disaster, you know, seems better. Like. You know, in the West, there are things we're all willing to do to prevent forest fires, and we understand that at certain times of the year, we might not be able to build a campfire, you know, speaking of, you know, singing Kumbaya, or we might not be able to set off, you know, fireworks. But, and and we kind of see those as as things we can all do to protect the public good. I tend to look at vaccinating the same way, you know, the same way I would say to my kids, you know, it's a really dry summer. We can go camping, but, you know, we're going to take the Coleman stove, and I'm sorry we can't build a campfire, even though it's thunder roast s'mores over it. Um, but it, I, I also understand that, that this idea of a vaccine being, you know, something that we would all do to help each other is, is relatively new for this cohort of people living on the planet at this time. I think our grandparents understood the public, um, uh, service aspect of getting vaccinated because they'd seen communicable illnesses that killed each other. Um, my generation of folks and the generation under me hasn't seen that. And so if you haven't seen people in iron lungs because of polio, if you haven't seen people permanently debilitated because of, you know, measles complications that they had as a child, it's harder to say, you know, let me take the jab for my kids and myself, but let me also do it to protect my neighbors. So this kind of re-understanding uh, uh, a, a, an illness as something that we all have to pitch in for and that we all have to protect each other and, you know, the natural resources that are our community uh, by, you know, by getting vaccinated, I think is, is something new for this generation of folks to think about. 
Let's talk about uh, vaccinations. I want to start with uh, the you know the kind of the risk reward uh, risk benefits analysis that you know folks go through. Uh, I was talking to a friend the other day who at the time was not vaccinated, and uh, they they took me through their thinking, helped me to understand. Uh, they said, "Well, right now I'm perfectly healthy, and uh, you know take the risk, of course, of getting COVID. But if I get the vaccine," there's a very small but not zero chance I might have problems from the vaccine itself. And so that was their calculation for a while uh, before they finally got vaccinated. I wonder if you could take us through risk, you know, risk-benefit analysis. Sure. Well, and I, I think your, your friend's thinking makes a lot of sense, right? Like if, like if I'm perfectly healthy, why should I take on, you know, even though it's an infinitesimally small risk, you know, why should I put something in my body that, you know, poses this tiny, tiny, tiny risk? Um, but I, I think that it's also important to say to realize that if if a healthy individual gets COVID, the risk of complications from COVID are actually much much greater than um, than than the risk from the vaccine. And uh, it, it, it's hard because taking a taking a vaccine is something deliberate that you're doing. And some folks would rather play the odds and say, well. You know, if, if there's a tiny risk from, you know, from taking a vaccine, but it's something I deliberately choose, I'd rather pay the odds that may play the odds that maybe COVID will catch up with me. But I would just add to that when COVID does catch up with you, the odds that you could not just have kind of some scary illness in the short term, but also some long term problems are actually much bigger than any issue with vaccines. I noticed you said when COVID catches up with you. I don't think that's a, <laughs> I don't think you misspoke there, right? Uh, no. the, the odds are and, and I, uh, you're not going to you're, you're not going to avoid covid forever. I think that's exactly the point. Um you know this is a boy what are the good adjectives for this this virus? It's ferocious. It uh is wily. It uh it it's you know a, a virus as an entity has only one purpose, and that's to survive. And they do that by replicating. They are just a little factory that wants to wants to go on. And the only place they can replicate and survive this, this, COVID, this virus that causes COVID is in a human. And so it's going to keep looking for humans. And I, I think, especially as we're finding with Omicron now, it's harder and harder to, um, you know, to, to, to avoid uh, th- this virus altogether. I want to ask you about something uh, I hear from friends and you hear in the news. Uh, one reason uh, some folks uh, use to, to say, well, I'm not going to get vaccinated is they say, well, I, I was it was advertised to me that um, if I got the vac- vaccine, I would be protected from the virus. In other words, I wouldn't get COVID. But we're seeing, you know, breakthrough cases of, you know, somewhat large, I don't know, in the 30 percents or something, breakthrough cases. Um, what would you say, say to that, to the, the, the value still of, of the vaccines? Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I get that perspective as well. Like, like, why get it if I'm going to get the disease anyway? And I'd say answer in a couple of ways. You know, the first is that uh, the vaccine wasn't designed to be uh, to protect against illness altogether. It was designed against Serious, it was designed to protect us against all of the vaccines uh, were designed to protect us against serious illness, hospitalization, and death. And they've done that extraordinarily well. Let me now make that more personal. Um, I, I, well, actually, let me do two things. 
So um, the, the, the vaccine, in terms of protecting us against serious illness, hospitalization, and death, the current statistics for the state of Utah, in the last seven days, um, if you are unvaccinated, you are 15.7 times more likely to die of COVID than an individual who has been vaccinated. If you are unvaccinated, you are 17 times more likely to be hospitalized than an individual who has been vaccinated. And, you know, now let me take this kind of in even a more personal way. So in the hospital, in the emergency room, I have seen more cases of COVID over the last, you know, two years than I can count. It is a disease I am intimately and profoundly familiar with in a way I never could have imagined two years ago. You tell me when you were infected. You tell me what day you are, what symptoms you're having. I can pretty much tell you the outcome of what's going to happen. Um, and in particular, if you're vaccinated or not, I can tell you, oh, you're at day five of the illness. Here's what to expect on day six and seven and eight. Um, and, and vaccinated COVID, COVID with, uh, and let me, let me say, I've also seen patients now who have had breakthrough cases. And a case of COVID uh, in an unvaccinated individual looks very different from a case of COVID in a vaccinated individual. I have literally taken care of a man the same age, two men side by side, weighed the same amount, were the same age, had the same health risk factors in terms of hypertension or diabetes. Uh, one was vaccinated, one was not. And I've done this more times than I can count, bebopping back and forth between these rooms. The unvaccinated individual uh, will go on to be hospitalized and have a very, very, very rocky course if they recover. The unvaccinated uh, individual I give a pep talk to. Um, if they have to be hospitalized, they might get a little support and go home overnight. But even more likely, I'm going to give them a little pep talk. I'm going to talk to them about, you know, staying well hydrated, taking some Tylenol and ibuprofen, and they walk out the door. And so, you know, the the the, the reason to get to get vaccinated is 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 that, <laughs> and um, the statistics at the uh, uh, Utah Department of Health that I just quoted you make perfect sense to me because I see that every time I go to work. This op-ed. Let's get to the the main uh, thrust of your op-ed here, which was um, you're explaining why you uh, had your kids vaccinated now that now that they're vaccines for children. Uh, tell me a few of these reasons why you made that decision. Oh, sure. And, you know, the, I, I purposefully, that like the, the, the title of the article isn't why you should get your children immunized. It's why I immunized mine, because I think for every parent, it's an incredibly personal decision, and every thoughtful parent has to think through, you know, what that means for their family. Um, the, the, the biggest reasons for my children that I, that, that I made to, to vaccinate my children uh, in that uh, op-ed, you know, firstly, I've seen enough COVID to know that it's something to be concerned about. And even though statistically, my kids would come through it just fine, I don't want them to fall in the, in, in the hole of that small cohort of children who are having terribly uh, debilitating illness. So I, I want to protect them from that un- unlikely but very severe eventuality. I also want them to feel like they're part of a community, as I, as I talked to you about. Like, like I, get, I get kind of frustrated with you know, framing, you know, our, our children in this pandemic as victims. Well, they can't do this and they can't do that. And they, you know, they, what if they have to wear masks and what if they can't do this? Cause I, I like, I, I grieve every loss my kids have suffered in the last two years, 
But I also think it's a time to teach them to be proud and to stand up and to think about the world outside themselves and, and know you're not a victim. You can be a player. You can, you can do that just by getting immunized. And, and so, so that community piece you just talked about is one of them. One of the, and, and in particular, a almighty important part of my community are their beloved grandparents who are in their 80s. Um, my kids getting immunized provides a bigger buffer for my parents and, and their grandparents who they adore. And then one thing that I wish we talked more about uh, in terms of vaccinating children, and this is probably, you know, right up there with my big motivations for immunizing my kids, is that there will be long-term complications of the COVID illness. And I'm not talking about long COVID, which we all are familiar with. I'm talking about the fact that most viruses, um, you, you have them uh, at some, you have an acute illness at some point in your life. And many years later, something crops up uh, that is because you had that virus as a, as a younger person. Good examples of this are, you know, things like shingles. Uh, shingles is a reaction from chickenpox. You have, you have chickenpox as a child. The vaccine stays in your body for decades. And usually in your 50s or 60s, it comes back in the form of a very painful and sometimes debilitating rash, you know, called shingles or herpes zoster. Another example of this is post-polio syndrome. One of the reasons we wanted to eradicate polio is not just because you know, it was causing paralysis and problems acutely, but because people who survived polio as children, we learned 30 and 40 years later, had a hard time walking, had a hard time using their limbs, sometimes had a hard time talking, sometimes had a hard time with energy. So just like there's a, a post-chickenpox syndrome called shingles and a post-polio syndrome uh, that doesn't appear for decades later, there will be a post-COVID syndrome. That's just how viruses work. And giving my kids, getting my kids vaccinated, in addition to everything else I've talked about, if there was any way I could protect them from, uh, you know, from being part of a cohort of people in their 40s and 50s who have heart failure or have other problems because they had COVID as children, I, I wanted to give them a chance to avoid that. What else would you uh, recommend? Uh, you get the vaccine, obviously, uh, no matter what age. Uh, what what would you recommend uh, in terms of just trying to stay safe and help each other? Yeah, so um, the the biggest thing we can all do right now are kind of follow these simple, you know, recommended guidelines uh, about masking and about not gathering in groups. Um, I understand that wearing masks are a hassle, um, but they they also protect. They, they they are an old-fashioned and very effective way to prevent the spread of disease. And so, um, uh, wearing a mask when we're in big public spaces, you know, I think we've learned that um, you know we don't have to wear them out hiking or in the outdoors. We we don't need to wear them at home with each other unless someone's ill. But, but wearing masks in public spaces is a way of protecting ourselves and a way of protecting others. And, you know, I think masks, like, I don't, I don't know how they got such a bad rap. People kind of see it as an uh, imposition on their freedom. But if I'm willing to wear a mask, there's precious little I can't do in the world right now, um, and uh, especially as if more and more people are willing to wear them. And just to continue on, because um, I... I, I um, 
to, just to, to kind of play with that, um, uh, like the the like the metaphor of fire again a little bit and, and, and fire season. Like as as COVID quiets down, it's my hope that, you know, from from time to time it's gonna crop up. And just as there are times that, you know, we don't build fires in forests, you know, it may be that like, you know, our little community becomes a hot spot and everyone just understands, okay, for the next two weeks I'm gonna wear masks at the grocery store. And then it's done and, and, and it quiets down. Uh, but that, that's just something simple we can do uh, in times of stress. And that's kind of how I'm looking at, or, or in times when there's lots of COVID, and that's kind of how I'm looking at Omicron right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big surge. We're going to put the masks back on. We're going to be careful. Um, you know, I, my daughter has a birthday coming up, and I've said to her, you know, let's have a family celebration, and then let's have a big party this summer when we can be outdoors and COVID's not such a big deal. She's like, that sounds great. I get two parties? <laughs> you know, so just looking at it like that. Yeah, that's a good way to handle it. By the way, what... What and when is the end game? Uh, we're we're weary, we're tired. Um, you know, it, uh, what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, we're heading hopefully toward endemicity, right? Where collectively yeah. we, we're we're not our immune systems are not naive to uh, to this this new virus. Um, I, uh, I set an internal deadline of this this coming fall, fall of 22. I'm hearing that <laughs> may not hit. We may not reach my arbitrarily uh, set deadline. That was kind of for my mental health. Um, what What do you think? When When are we going to reach endemicity if we do? Well, I I um I've learned not to try and predict what uh, you know what this wily KG ever wanting to survive virus is going to do. Um, we may have yet another variant. Uh, we may have another variant that's more virulent and and killing more people, but uh, but here, here are the things that I hope for. And, and I also set, you know, kind of an internal deadline. Like, I hope we're through it by the fall of 2023. But, you know, excuse me, you and I can check in with each other and see if that's the case. <laughs> so so your, some... yours is 23. Okay. Well, you know. Or, or sorry, 2022. Oh, sorry, 20, I, oh, I, oh, I, I see. That, yeah. So we'll, we'll see if we were, were right or, or keep hope alive, I guess. Anyway, go ahead. Yes, exactly. We can assess in the fall whether, whether we outwitted uh, COVID. But, uh, there, there are some very real reasons for hope, and the biggest one is uh, the advent of these oral uh, antiviral medications. Uh, Paxlovid is the one that uh, is, looks like it's going to be the most effective. It was okayed uh, by you know the FDA and the CDC and whatever uh, right before Christmas, and so now you know factories everywhere are in this process of kind of ramping up the manufacture of this medication. Um, I would anticipate that it will be readily available for, uh, they're, they're, each state is getting a number of doses based on population that they then have to, have to decide how to distribute. And as, that, the, the, as distribution ramps up, each state will get more and more. Uh, so, you know, there's not very much available, but my hope is that by March or April, that would be a, a medication that I can simply write a prescription for and that someone can pick up at their local pharmacy. And that, that medication will be a game changer because very much like uh, the, the, the medication is not going to completely make COVID go away, but it does lessen the severity of symptoms and shorten the duration of the illness. And that's very much the way uh, the medication Tamiflu works. 
if you start it early um, after a diagnosis of influenza, you get a prescription for Tamiflu for five days. Uh, the illness isn't as severe. It's something you're able to muddle through at home. And when we have a medication that will work the same way for COVID, that's going to change everything. It's going to change our individual calculations about risk. You know, is it safe for me to take this vacation? Is it safe for me to, uh, you know, are my kids safe at school? Uh, COVID is going to become a disease that is mostly treated at home with medication and rest as opposed to in the hospital. So that will free up industry. That will help our economy. Uh, the, the, the advent of these medications is one of the most hopeful things I've um, I, like I've felt since since we developed the vaccines, and especially in combination, um, if more and more people are willing to be vaccinated, and then we also have this oral medication available, COVID is not going to be the d- big disruptor to our lives, you know, unless it throws us another curveball. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm hopeful that 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 its capacity to to hurt our lives is going to continue to wane. That is very hopeful. Uh, let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, I do want to focus on hope and resilience. I think we really need this. We're, I don't know, uh, emotions uh, could include numbness and hunkering down and denial and uh, weariness, certainly. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about hope and resilience when we come back. I, I want to, I'll make reference uh, in the next segment to an uh, uh, op-ed piece by Ian Bogost. This is in The Atlantic. Um he talks about hope. In fact, his piece is titled, um, let me uh, scroll up here. I'm starting to give up on post-pandemic life. And the subtitle is Despair is Not a Mild Symptom. Um, I want to talk about hope and resilience when we come back. We're talking with uh, Dr. Marion Bishop, and we're talking about the pandemic and COVID. More following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and S.E. Needham Jewelers, serving Utah since 1896, offering diamond engagement rings, anniversary bands, gemstone and diamond jewelry. 141 North Main Street in Logan. Information at seneedham.com. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting in Spanish on a new channel. You can hear a variety of music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue on UPR. You can hear it 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR 3 button. Utah Public Radio está transmitiendo en español en un nuevo canal. Puede escuchar una variedad de programas musicales y de charlas en español de Radio Bilingue en UPR. Puede escucharlo las 24 horas del día en upr.org. Simplemente haga clic en Escuchar en Vivo y luego presione el botón UPR 3. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll travel to the remote and rocky islands of Cape Verde, 300 miles off the west coast of Africa, to hear enchanting mornas, funanas, and coladeras. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Cape Verde, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. We've reached our last segment now with uh, Dr. Marion Bishop. Uh, she's an emergency room doctor and writer who practices uh, here in northern Utah. And uh, you can find some of her writings at her website, mariancbishop.com. She's on Medium as well, and you can find her in uh, Salt Lake Tribune uh, and uh, other outlets. Um, and we're talking about COVID, talking about the pandemic. 
as uh, record numbers of new COVID cases are happening right now, hospitalizations, uh, deaths continue at a high rate. Um, and uh, so I want to get into talking about hope and resilience. We certainly need this. Let me frame this, uh, at least the beginning of this discussion, um, this part of the discussion with, uh, I made reference to uh, Ian Bogost writing in The Atlantic. This was December. Uh, the title of his piece is, I'm starting to give up on post-pandemic life. He's talking about you know, the hopes uh, that, he, that he was clinging to. And uh, this is his quote at the end of the article. Everyone knows the past is gone, but now the past's future feels lost too. And I hope it's not, but I can't shake the feeling. Whatever you'd say, Dr. Bishop, about, about hope. Yeah, for heaven's sakes, you know, you when you asked me to come on the program 10 days or so ago and said that you wanted to talk about this, it's put me in a really thoughtful frame of mind. And I, I think there's a certain kind of hope that's not useful to us right now, and that's that kind of Pollyanna-ish, oh, everything will be okay, you know, we'll get through this together. I mean, that that, that has a place, but it, it really can feel kind of tired and um, almost impossible. And so, you know, I've had to kind of look for hope in other ways. Like, I think the question really is, how does one have hope in the middle of something horrible, especially when there's, we're not sure when an end is in sight? Um, and, you know, I've, I've found myself, you know, looking for hope in the day-to-day and examples of strength and resilience in the day-to-day, as opposed to relying on a future that, that I, I don't know when will come. And um, anyway, that, that's kind of one of the things that, that sustains me. Uh, what, what, are, what are the things to hope for in the middle of it rather than hoping for the end, which I think will come, but I, but I got to live in the moment now, right? Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly true. Have you had, uh, have you had experiences there with patients or anything you, you've experienced um, that, that have, I, I guess, increased your day-to-day hope? Yes, you know, I've had some amazing experiences in, in the hospital, and um, I, I've seen colleagues do amazing things. I've I've had some patients who've moved me to tears. Um, um, I, I can tell a few of those stories. You know, um, I work a lot of night shifts. It's part of uh, uh, kind of the you know my deal with you know having young children, and and in, in the hospital at night. Uh, we there 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 there's always plenty of staff there, but there's usually a little little less of the hustle and bustle. The administrators are gone, and so we become quite close to each other. And um, I was working the other night with a with a new lab tech who's probably not out of school for very long, and you know suddenly tasked with you know running the laboratory, you know all by himself for eight hours, and you know certainly with adequate training, and he's well prepared, but that's a big job. And um, I had a patient who needed uh, a series of, uh, he needed blood. Um, they, they had a gastrointestinal bleed. And one of the trickiest and most complicated things that a lab tech can do is to type and cross match, you know, donor blood. How they, they have to take the, the patient's blood and kind of check it for a gazillion antibodies and a bunch of different markers and then find the unit that is best matched so the patient won't have a, won't have a, a reaction. And I watched this, this young lab tech, you know, adequately, adequately trained, eager, you know, perform this task, you know, in a flash and did it so well that, you know, it's a task that lab techs who've been around for a long time find challenging. 
Um, I've also watched, you know, nursing staff just not just take care of more volume of patients than they ever have, but, you know, give uh, medications and use modalities that are, are, are new, sometimes new to them, learning on the fly, learning from more senior nurses um, or nurses who've had different experiences in different hospitals, how to do brand new things. This is part of what I'm talking about, about, you know, like we all might be tired and we all might be weary, but but we are in the middle of learning and growing in ways that are really extraordinary. And the willingness of my colleagues to kind of, you know, put their shoulder to the wheel, um, expand the scope of their practice, you know, work, continue working hard when they're already weary is a, is a source of hope. Um, I can tell you a sweet patient, a sweet story about a patient too, if you'd like me to. Yes. Love it. (laughs) So, um, so drunk patients, uh, in the emergency room on a Friday or a Saturday night are like bread and butter. Like that's a regular (laughs) occurrence, you know, someone who, uh, who is intoxicated and, and kind of in trouble. We, you know, most emergency rooms around the world have, have, you know, end up seeing folks with problems with alcohol, uh, on weekends. And, um, I had, you know, at some point, this was in the middle of the Delta wave, had a, uh, a couple of young men come in and, and I don't, I don't remember if they'd been out at a bar or if they'd been camping or hunting or somewhere, but they came in in the early hours of the morning and, and the one, the one guy said, you know, like, we've been out drinking and I know my buddies had a little too much, but I don't just think it's the alcohol. There's something else going on. And so we took care of his friend and, and kind of got him all, you know, kind of cleaned up and helped him and he got IV fluid and he got medication. And, but we also discovered that in the middle of all of that, that, um, that he had tested positive for COVID. And so, you know, the patient had spent an hour or two in the emergency room with us and the, and his, his buddy had been waiting in the waiting room. When it got time to take him home, I, I had to give the, this, this friend that news. And, um, and, and so as I, I kind of said to him, you know, I, I kind of gave the friend all of the information about, you know, how to take care of COVID. He needed Tylenol and ibuprofen. You know, here's how much you could give. Here's when you could do it. Here's, you know, make sure it gets enough fluids. Um, if a pulse oximeter is this gadget that will measure the oxygen level of, uh, that, that a person's getting, it's a really helpful device to have. I talked to him about where to get a pulse oximeter and what the reading should be. So I gave this, you know, young man who, you know, thought he was just out for an easy night, you know, a whole, you know, kind of COVID-101 discussion. And then I said, you know, you'll need to pass all this information on to his family when you take him home. And I read written it all down and, and, uh, and tell him to, you know, isolate from his family and whatever else to protect his family. And, and this young man who, you know, I'd, I'd never met until that night and was just kind of taken into the world of COVID all of a sudden, just looked at me and he had this really sober, thoughtful look on his face. And I could tell he was overwhelmed. And I looked at him and he swallowed hard and he said, he said, no, I'm just going to take him home with me. And uh, then he, then he put his buddy in the car and he said, he said, I live alone. There's no one else there. You know, I, I'll take care of my friend. And it was just such a, an amazing example to me of someone doing a really selfless thing. You know, he could have just dumped his buddy off and said, you know, boy, this was a night, this night was more than I counted on, you know, get out of my truck. I'll talk to you in a few weeks. Um, but he just took him home and it was, you know, I've, I've seen too many, too many things like that, you know, across the course of the last two years to, to not have hope. 
Well, that's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. We just have about two minutes left. Um, I want to read this from the end of your op-ed piece that we've made reverence to. You talked about uh, your your son, seven years old, uh, getting uh, the vaccine. You say, after witnessing so much death and illness from COVID in the emergency room, I confess to wiping away a tear as the nurse put a Band-Aid on my son's arm and smiled at us through her mask. I would never have wished for a pandemic to disrupt my children's childhoods or for it to have lasted this long. Getting my kids immunized takes us one step closer to a world where they can grow up safe from COVID. So just about a minute. Um, It's interesting um, to, to view this through 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 your eyes, through your children's eyes, right? Um, I wonder that maybe one one thing that's about hope or resilience or uh, a lesson learned that you've, as a family, you've learned through this. Oh, thanks for that question. I have a good friend who, early in the days of COVID, I was you know bemoaning to her all the things my kids were going to miss out on and what a disruption to their childhoods this was, and just you know, a kind of worry and anyway, everything that was sad. And she said to me, she said, she said, you know, Marion, everything you just said is right. She said, and there are far worse things that could happen to your kids than that they spend the next two years learning how to do difficult things or the next few years do learning how to do difficult things. And I've like, I've kind of taken that as a, as a frame, right? Like there's, there's a lot of loss we need to pay attention to. And we need to treat people with compassion uh, and and realize that we all need to grieve. And it's also true that I think there are going to be some things we come out of this with uh, that may be invaluable. You know, that, that greatest generation uh, that fought World War II, those children lived through World War I and the Depression before they, before they got to World War II and did the heroic things they did. You know, I look at my own kids and I, like I, I, I am sorry for every sad thing they've done. But I also wonder what they've learned. And I, I think we're not going to know that for a few years, but I think it may be amazing. Well, it's a great place to uh, end the program on a hopeful note there. Thank you so much. Uh, Marion Bishop is an emergency room doctor and writer. You can find her writings at mariancbishop.com. Uh, Dr. Bishop, thank you so much for all you do, and thanks for coming on the program for us. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Frequent droughts and a growing population continue to raise the stakes for water access in Utah. This week, learn about a drawn-out conflict over water in Salt Lake City that shows how tensions between agricultural and municipal water users are hardly new. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In 1907, The Big Cottonwood Conduit was developed to supply water to Salt Lake City's growing population. City officials saw it as an opportunity to prevent water shortages, but farmers argued that the water diversion prioritized urban development over their rights and threatened their livelihoods. A legal battle ensued, exposing long-standing tensions between city dwellers and farmers over water. Salt Lake City initially pulled water from emigration and city creeks in the north end of the Salt Lake Valley but demands of a growing urban population quickly outpaced those sources. 
Further south, Big Cottonwood Creek offered access to more water, but it was already used by farmers in the southern end of the valley. City officials pressured the farmers to trade their access to the creek for irrigation water piped up from Utah Lake. The two parties debated over who would have access to the water during the winter, when irrigation was not needed, and compromised on the city diverting one-half the stream flow during those months. Ultimately, the farmers consented to give up potable mountain water in exchange for irrigation water that was unfit for drinking. The agreement did not last long. Hard feelings persisted even after the deal was made, motivating about 500 farmers and water users to challenge the agreement in court. A final judgment wasn't issued on the case until a 1918 appeal came out in favor of the city, but the feud between city officials and farmers ran for much longer. In 1926, water shortages in Salt Lake sparked speculation that someone had been stealing large quantities of water from the Big Cottonwood Conduit. Investigators found that a valve lock had been tampered with and canyon water turned toward farmland. Farmers in the vicinity were questioned but claimed to know nothing about the open valve. It is unclear whether anyone was held accountable for the water theft, but city dwellers seem to have won this decades-long conflict. Big Cottonwood Creek continues to provide as much as 20% of the water for Salt Lake City, even as 80% of Utah's water is used for agriculture. The saga of the Big Cottonwood Conduit represents a persistent divide between urban and rural water interests in Utah. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and utahumanities.org improving communities through active engagement with the humanities.